I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. As we continue in our series here in this marvelous book, we're nearing the end. Just a couple of more weeks and we'll be sadly finished with, because uh, I, I hope at least you have enjoyed this. I have enjoyed this book tremendously. What wonderful, wonderful things here. Today as we come to Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 5 through 6, we are encountering the third of three very dramatic differences that should be evidenced in our lives as people of faith. If we believe all that has been taught in this book of Hebrews about Jesus and that we are saved through Him, that we have a relationship with Him, and we have a glorious destiny through Him, then first, as we saw two weeks ago, our faith should be made manifest in the way that we love one another. It should be evident by the way that we love one another that we are trusting in Jesus. Secondly, as we saw last week, it should be evidenced in our marriages and our sexual conduct, people should see that we are believers in Jesus Christ and the way that we conduct ourselves in our marriage and we conduct ourselves in our moral purity. Today, as we come to verses 5 and 6, we see how our faith in Jesus Christ should be evidenced and manifest in our relationship to money, and worldly goods. Follow along here as I read these verses from the Lord's inerrant and precious and inspired Word. Keep your life free from money. No, keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, here as we come to Your Word, we are grateful Grateful first for the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ, both here together in this room and many online this morning, that we're able to gather around Your Word to hear You speak to us through it. I ask that as You do, that our hearts would be ready to listen that You would open our spiritual eyes to see what You have here for us in Your Word. That we might be not only quick to listen, as James says, but that we will be quick to do as well. To be doers of the Word. That our time with You here this morning and in Your Word will change our lives. We might be more like Jesus. His name we ask it. Amen. So our text this morning begins with, Keep your life free from the love of money. 
It's worth noting that it didn't say, as I read there a moment ago, that it didn't say keep your life free from money. This text, and nor does the Bible anywhere, call for you and I to renounce all worldly goods, all worldly treasure, all money, give it all away and go live in poverty in a cave. doesn't tell us to do that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that being poor is more spiritual than being wealthy. It's not what our text says. What it says is, don't love money. Keep your life free from the love of money. I have heard often, as you probably have as well, have probably heard people misquote 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verse 10. Now, by the way, I loved that Rob chose 1 Timothy 6 for us to read from this morning. And when I saw that coming up this week, I said, that's awesome because it fits right with where we're going. And I'm going to refer to that quite a bit now in the message to that passage. But in in 1 Timothy 16, many people misquote it and say, money is the root of all evil. Have you heard people say that before? But that's not what the text says. I I know many of you know that very well. What the text says, as we read it, is for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's a very distinct and very big difference, profound difference between that and what the way many people phrase it. First of all, it isn't money that is the problem. It is the Love of money, that's the problem. Secondly, money isn't the root, or the love of money isn't the root of all evil, but it's the root of all kinds of evil. This morning, as we come to talk about the love of money, or we could also use the words greed or covetousness, the love of money is a sin. And it is one that is dangerous. It is potentially devastating. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, in fact, it says that it is equal to idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It is a severe sin. There are many warnings throughout the Scripture against the love of money, against greed, against covetousness. And why is that? Well, simply going back to the passage we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, It says in verse 10, as we read, and I'm going to expand it a little bit to the verse before and after, that it leads into more sin and into ruin. As verse 9 says in 1 Timothy 6, But those who desire to get rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, it's a dangerous thing because it has not just affected, it doesn't just, this sin doesn't just affect unbelievers and people out there, it affects people within the church. It says here that Many, or some, have wandered away from the faith. Some believers 
walked away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Folks like Demas, Paul says, who, who abandoned him out of love for the world. The Bible is full of stories of men and women, people who were done in by greed, the love of money. Some like, one example would be Balaam, who was a prophet for profit. He wasn't a non-profit prophet, but a prophet for profit. He uh, wanted money. He loved it. And so uh, he was called on by, uh, to, to go and curse the people of Israel. You know the story. God wouldn't let him do it. But he, you can go back to Numbers 22 and 23. I won't tell the whole story, but you can jot that down. Go read it uh, this week. He, he found a way to bring problems on God's people because he was all about the bucks, all about the money. Achan. Achan, you might remember, was an Israelite as the people of of Israel uh, took the city of Jericho. Joshua chapter 7. And Achan, uh, the the word was, don't take anything from the city. But he saw some stuff and he says, oh, i got to have that. And he, you know, stuck it in his pockets, as it were, took it back to his tent and hid it under, under the carpets in the dirt. And God saw it, of course, and... Achan and his whole family were judged for that sin of greed. Gehazi, Elijah's servant in 2 Kings chapter 5, you may recall that that Elisha had healed this this great general from another country and, and he wanted to pay Elisha and Elisha said, I'm not taking your money, I don't want it. Gehazi was like, hmm hate to see good money go to waste. And he snuck around and uh, tried to you know, work the deal to get him some money. And, and of course, God knew, and so did Elisha when he came back. And Gehazi was judged by God with leprosy. He died a leper because of that. You recall Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks to a rich young man, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says he wants to know how to have eternal life. How to go to heaven. You recall he walked away sad, disappointed because he refused to let go of his money. He chose his possessions, his money, his wealth over eternal life. Of course, you may remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira Acts chapter 5 who chose to lie Try to lie to God. You can't do that, by the way, as they lied to the church about an offering they were giving and saying they were giving this much of things when they were actually holding back. And God judged them for that. They died that very day. They dropped dead. And of course, there's Judas, John chapter 12, who betrays Jesus for money. It's a serious sin. It causes even believers to wander and walk away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. But not only that, it's a serious sin because it interferes with our relationship with God. Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other says you can't serve, you can't love both God and money. 
The Apostle John, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, love for the world, love for the world's stuff, and love for God cannot occupy the same heart. If we love the world and its stuff, we do not love the Father. We do not love God. Another reason this is such a serious sin, not only does it lead us into more sin and ruin, not only does it interfere with our relationship with God, just from a practical point of view, wealth, money, possessions never satisfy You know, our world overall has bought into the myth that money, wealth, brings happiness and contentment. But the Word of God says, no way. Book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You know, it doesn't take much digging. It doesn't take much looking to discover that there are plenty of mansions that are inhabited by miserable people. Get to know people in Lake St. Louis. Get to know people in Chesterfield, in Clayton. Go to Hollywood. Go to wherever it is where you think wealthy people live. And you will discover that there are scores of miserable, discontented, unhappy, sad, broken people living in wealth, in abundance. Take care, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of His possessions. In other words, if I might paraphrase, the quality of someone's life cannot be measured by how much they have. Our text goes on. Keep your heart free. Keep your life free from the love of money. And then it goes on and it says, and be content with what you have. So instead of loving money, we are... To be content. We are to learn contentment. Here at the chapel, we have the blessing of being in so many ways a very diverse congregation. We have many different income levels here in this church. But the reality is we are all rich. Even the poorest among us here in this church are among the world's richest. It only takes $4,210 of total assets to be in the richest half of the world. Take all the cash you have in your bank account, all that's in your wallet, all that's the wealth that's whatever you have in your house, in your car, in you know 
the, your iPhone and iPad and you add it all up and if it adds up to more than $4,210, you are richer than half of the people on the planet. You're richer than over three and a half billion people. And you thought you were poor. And let me tell us, most of us have far more than that that puts us in the top 25 or top 10 or top 1 or top half or top quarter percent of the richest people in the world. And that's just folks in this room. So we are rich, and yet we struggle with discontent. I imagine that if we got together and could really talk eye to eye, you know, where we can see to each other's souls and we'd have to tell the truth. <laughs> There's not many, if any of us, in this room or watching online who could honestly say that I don't desire, I don't want something different than what I have. We may want something more, we may want something less, but we want something different. Maybe we want more money. Maybe we want more house. Maybe we want, you know, more free time. Maybe we want less stress. Maybe we want less worry. Maybe we want less sickness. But the reality for the vast majority of us Whatever we have just doesn't seem quite as good as what we don't have. And you might say, well, of course it's that way. How can we avoid it? I mean, the, the recent statistics that are out there is that the average American, we encounter some 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements every single day. Because they are everywhere around us. They're on the billboards. They're on cars that drive by. They're on t-shirts. It's on the news. It's on TV. It goes everywhere we go. They're in our text messages. They're in our emails. They're on our apps. They're even in the announcements at church. Everywhere we go, there's advertisements. And almost every one of them has one goal. To make you discontent. To make you want something different, something new, something you don't have. Ooh. An Arby sandwich right now. Do they deliver during church? You know. We want. Obviously, we can't help it. Of course, I noticed that this letter was written to people almost 2,000 years ago. To people who had endured persecution, we saw back in chapter 10. People who had had all of their property confiscated, taken away. They lost everything. Others who were put into prison. And people now with meager means who are trying to help and support and take care of others 
who are in prison and who are impoverished. All of these believers were suffering. And yet here they're being warned against greed, against love of money, against being discontent. What I realize is that greed and discontent then aren't a new problem. It's not a problem of 21st century America. It has been a problem that has been with humanity all along. And it is not just a problem of the rich. It's a problem of those who are poor and those who are hurting as well. While greed and discontent are timeless and pervasive among humanity, contentment, on the other hand, has always been a rare but precious quality. So in Jeremiah Burroughs, a a Puritan preacher in England some 400 years ago wrote on this subject. He entitled his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's rare even among believers. J.C. Ryle was a... uh, Back up before I go there... So Paul wrote to Timothy about the need and value of contentment. Again, go back to 1 Timothy 6 where he wrote, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's aspirational, he says, we will be content with just that. (laughs) I think Paul is speaking for himself. And maybe for a few with him, the rest of us, we can go, well, would you be content if all you had was food and the clothes on your back? I hate to say it, I probably wouldn't be. But that's what we ought to be. That's what this is calling us to be. J.C. Ryle was this British pastor Uh, in the late 1800s. And in a sermon on this passage that I read this week, I found some wonderful gems. This was one of them. He said, Few, I am afraid, have the least idea what a shortcut to happiness it is to be content. To be content is to be rich and well off. He is the rich man who has no wants and requires no more. I ask not what his income may be. For a man may be rich in a cottage and poor in a palace. How right he is. What a marvelous thought. What a shortcut to happiness it is to be content. Again, Our world, as we said, buys into this philosophy and thinking that somehow if I get more, if I get one more thing, if I get a little more money in the bank account, then I will be content and then I will be happy. (laughs) No. The path to happiness is not more. It is contentment with whatever we have. And so J.C. Ryle is saying that If we understood the blessing that contentment is, we would want to pursue it. 
And so I realize, by the way, that these admonitions are here. The admonition is here. This instruction is here to keep yourself from greed and be content with what you have because we're not going to move from lover of stuff to contented Christian. We won't make that move accidentally. We won't just wake up tomorrow and go, whoa, I don't love stuff and I am content. No, it's going to have to be intentional. We need to, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. It's going to be a learning process, which is why while our text said, be content, I wrote here in our notes, learn contentment. It's going to have to be a process going to have to be an intentional action and choice, which raises the question, if it's something we need to learn and we need to do intentionally, then how do we root out of our lives the seeds of discontent before they can grow and flower and blossom into the sins of greed and love of money and covetousness? And how do we, instead of that, how do we cultivate and how do we grow contentment in our heart and in our life? There are many potential answers. As I was to that question, as I was pondering on that this week, my mind went to 1 Timothy chapter 6, which again was why I was so glad that Rob chose this passage. And as I went through, I and as I read through a few of the verses there, I came up with six keys to help us to develop and to grow contentment. The verses there in in verse 17 and 19, it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Just those couple of verses are loaded with with wonderful keys to develop contentment. I'm going to quickly run through these. It says, be humble. Don't be haughty. What he says is, we aren't entitled. We live in an entitled world. Everybody thinks, I deserve it. I deserve to be rich. I deserve to have more. I deserve to have as much as he does or she does. Not fair. May I remind us, the Scripture tells us what we deserve. We went over it last week. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 says, for the wages of sin is death, it's hell. What do we deserve? We deserve hell. The fact that we haven't been squashed like a bug yet is the mercy of God. The fact that we have any good thing is the mercy and grace of God. It is a blessing from God. Be humble for every blessing that we have. Secondly, 
trust God. It says riches cannot be trusted, but God can. Rely on Him. Every rich, every blessing we have of material things, all of it is going. Everything in this world is passing away. It says earlier in the text here in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world, we can't take anything out of it. Riches can't be trusted, but God can. Rely on Him. goes on, be grateful. It says that everything we have comes from God and He has given to us everything richly for our enjoyment. So we are to be grateful for what we've received and we are to enjoy everything we've received. Christians ought to be the most happy people in the world as we enjoy everything that we have because it's a gift from God. Enjoy it. You know, in so often we complain about the very stuff that we should enjoy. Oh, I got this old shirt on. I got a shirt. You know, look at it. And it's comfy too. It's broken in. You know, I got a car. When you drive home this afternoon, give thanks that you got a car. When you start it up, go, thank you, God. It started. And I've got a car. You know, and as you're going down the street, roll down the window. Look how fast I go. <laughs> you know? And then roll the window up and crank the air conditioning up. And I got, I got air conditioning. Isn't that awesome? Turn the radio on and go, listen to that bass. Yeah. You know, I got a car. Aren't I blessed? Yeah, it's got dents on the hood from the last hailstorm. It's got rust in the back got 200,000 miles on the odometer, but I'm richer than half of the people in the world because they don't have a car. Actually, more than half of the people in the world. Thank you, God. See, how often do we just take stuff for granted and we don't enjoy God because you gave me this. Thank you. Be grateful. I'm starting to preach a whole sermon here and I can't. I've got to move on. If I could just take these things and... Actually, I think I did that a few years ago. Be grateful. Enjoy our blessings. Another thing to do is be generous. He says be, we are to be rich as the rich people. And we are richer at least than half of the people in this world. Most of us richer than 90% of the people in this world. We are among the world's elite, most of us. We are therefore, he says, to be rich in doing good. A great way to enjoy God's gifts, God's blessings, to enjoy the wealth that God has given to us is to share it with others, to bless others who have need. Along with that, we are to invest in heaven. He says we are to take our money and use it to store it up for the future. He says as we share it, as we use it, to bless others and use it to, to honor God as we use it to support His work, as we do all of those things. He says we are storing it up for the future. He's talking about heaven. Invest where the real riches are. As Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, don't lay up your treasure on earth. Don't store it up here because it's all going. It's gone one day. Store it up where it lasts forever in heaven. Invest in heaven. And along with that, lastly, and again there's more here, but remember that our real 
home. Our real life is in heaven. Those are just a few good biblical answers for how do we root out of our life that those discontent weeds and those weeds of the love of money and how do we grow contentment. There's some very practical things. Now, all that's good, the reality is our passage here this morning doesn't take us that direction. Our passage here this morning, instead, after He gives us these commands, keep free from the love of money and be content with what you have, He takes us to something else, to a quote from the Old Testament that when we first glance at it, when we first look at it, we go, what does that have to do with anything? Notice what the last part of verse 5 says, For He, that's God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, yeah. This promise, when God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it comes from the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. It's where Moses is about to die. And he is addressing a new generation of Israelites that is about to enter into the promised land under Joshua. And he says, God says to you, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then just a couple of chapters later and one book later, if you just turn the page, you get into the book of Joshua, chapter 1. And there God tells Joshua the same promise, the same thing, as Joshua is trying to take the task of getting these people into the promised land. And God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. By the way, the the Greek here, and I am not a Greek scholar. I didn't really even study Greek. I depended on Dr. Dyer to help me understand what I don't know of Greek. There's wonderful tools, though. You don't have to be a Greek scholar these days to see wonderful stuff. This little phrase, in English, you don't, we can't see it, but in Greek, there are five negatives. In English, most of our English translations, there are two. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Two negatives. In the Greek, there's five. It literally reads something like this. I will not not leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. In English, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it does in Greek, apparently. There's a marvelous old hymn. And it came to mind as I read that this week. All one of my old favorite hymns, How Firm a Foundation. The last verse, last line of that song, the hymn writer obviously knew the nuance of this Greek. Speaking of the person who has leaned on Jesus, He writes this in that hymn. He says, That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never, five times, (laughs) forsake. 
exactly the exact thing God says here. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you. Now, the previous line in verse 5 calls for you and me to be content with what we have. So what is it that we have that we are to be content with? And if the first thing that comes to our mind, we say, what is it that you have to be content with? If the first thing that comes to your mind is my bank account or my stock portfolio or my IRA or my house or my car or my flashy, nice guitar or my prized possession or, you know, if that's what comes to our mind, we are missing the point of this verse. We're missing it completely. See, this passage points us to our great treasure, to our greatest treasure. And we don't want to miss it because our greatest treasure is not the gifts, it's not the wealth It's not the stuff that we have. Our greatest treasure is not the gifts. It is the one who gives the gifts. And that's the point. That's why he says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But it goes even deeper. Remember, this book is written to whom? Why is it called Hebrews? Because it's written to Hebrews, to Jewish believers in Jesus. Now, these folks, they grew up knowing the Scripture well. The Jews did a great job of educating their children in the Word of the Lord. They knew exactly where this quote, when he says here, for God has said, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. These Hebrew readers said, ah, I know where that comes from. They knew it came from from Deuteronomy 31 and from Joshua chapter 1. They also knew all the backstory leading up to those promises from God. They knew well the story of how the people of Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt and God was taking them. He brought them out of Egypt and was taking them to the promised land. They knew that He was. He assured them that He would take them to the land of Canaan and take them into the land, give them the land, the land of promise, the land of blessing. But they knew, and we can also remember that all along their journey from Egypt to Canaan, all along the way, they struggled trusting God. God had promised them. God had assured them. But they struggled in that. So they complained. They murmured. They rebelled against God time and time again. They said, how is God going to provide for us? Oh, we're thirsty. Oh, we're hungry. Where are we going to get food? They failed over and over to trust Him. They kept complaining. 
Finally, they get to Canaan. They're at the border of the land, ready to go in. And you remember the story. When the spies came back to say what was in the land, the people said, <gasps> they refused to go in because they really didn't believe that God could or that God would take them safely into the land and give it to them and bless them there. So the book of Hebrews back in chapter 4 reminds us that that whole generation died in the wilderness. They stayed in the wilderness for 40 more years. They all died off. The next generation comes along and now they are ready to go into the land under Joshua's leadership and Moses turns to the people and says, the Lord says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And God says to Joshua, as He is about to take these people where Moses couldn't take them, at least take their descendants. And God says to Joshua, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. These Hebrew readers, I think the connection is crystal clear to them. When He says, keep your life free from the love of money and learn contentment, be content with what you have, our greatest treasure is in God. We need to learn the, the lesson that our ancestors didn't learn that first generation. And we are to embrace the lesson the next generation learned. God can be trusted. and He is with us. And He is for us. God never promises that our life will be easy. He didn't promise the children of Israel that they wouldn't have to walk through the desert, that their feet wouldn't get tired and sore that they wouldn't get a sunburn now and then. God doesn't promise to us that we will have everything we want or even everything we think we need. God doesn't promise that we will never suffer. He doesn't promise that we will never be sick. But what we saw back in chapter 12 a few weeks ago as Pastor Larry taught us, that there will be no difficulty come into our life, no suffering come into our life, no hardship come into our life, but that doesn't come through the hands of a loving Father. And that God as a loving Father designs to use every bit of it for our good. Every bit of it to train us, to mature us, to grow us. It's called there in Hebrews chapter 12, a word we hate to hear. It's called discipline. But God, through it all, is a loving Father and He is with us and He is working for us in everything. And as the passage says, God is only with us and for us. He will never forsake us. Meaning that He will never abandon us meaning that He will never give up on us, but He will do, as Paul wrote, he, will, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in us. 
He will deliver us safely as we saw at the end of chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago. He will deliver us safely into the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We live in a world that is falling apart, a world that will end. Everything around us is going to perish. Except for two things, by the way, in this world. The Word of God will last forever and the souls of men. Everything else will perish. But God has promised, we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, that He is delivering to us. He has given to us already. It is already ours. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A home, a destiny that is glorious, that is eternal, and that is secure. And so our text turns to one more quote. This one from Psalm 118 verse 6. says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have a secure confidence. Since God is with us and will never forsake us, then there is no situation, there is no circumstances, there is no person, no one who can take us away from Him. Therefore, there is nothing that can thwart His purpose for us. So we have no fear. No matter what our circumstances, we can trust God. We can trust Him in our wealth. We can trust Him in our poverty. We can trust Him in our health. We can trust Him in our sickness. And we can be at peace and we can be content. That's a powerful message of this verse. My summary of it is simply this. Don't love stuff. Love Jesus. Trust Him and find contentment. Or the way Haddon Robinson summed it up once, more memorable probably, better to have a satisfied soul than a fat wallet. Let's pray. Father, We need to hear this because as rich people, I think there is a greater temptation to love wealth. That's why Timothy takes the time to single out the rich people where the passage before us here tends to single out those who are suffering. That's why Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, how we need Your grace to handle the trial of wealth. Father, I pray that we would handle it well. That you would enable us to understand that the root of the love of money is discontent. The root of discontent is failing to trust you. May we cling to you as our great treasure. And with You, be content. We need nothing else. If You give us food and clothing, that is enough. Anything else is above and beyond. And with that, may we be generous and willing to share. So that Jesus may be honored 
so that a, wor- that a world that is steeped in materialism and is miserable may look at us and say, what is it? How can you be content and joyful? We can say it's all about Jesus. In His name we ask.